0: Seinfeld blessed us with nine years of comedy gold. It was a sardonic narcotic like no other, dovetailed plot lines birthed from some of television's greatest and most disturbed writers, misanthropic characters intent on questioning their most trivial confines, and detached, dead on humor that reveled in depravity. The whole show was a love letter to a caffeine-fueled New York, a big steaming bouillon of irritation, after all, the root of all comedy is indignation. The drug of Seinfeld was quickly valued higher than cocaine fermenting popular culture with a subversive tangent of drollery, capturing the ethos of its time. But, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. And perhaps the so famed show about nothing has not treated its so dexterous ensemble so tastefully. After the sitcom came to its controversial end, critics quickly pronounced the cast's favoring fortunes as the Seinfeld curse. We were witnessing something not necessarily unprecedented, but something never seen on such a prodigious scale. Not victims of failure, but victims of global, astronomical success. And Jason Alexander is the paragon, the exemplar, the epitome, the embodiment, of self-defeating conquest. He's worked little since Seinfeld ended, a perpetual resignation to the cruel nature of typecasting. It's only aggravated by the fact he was probably the most naturally talented and capable actor in the cast, a fact harshly neglected by the Emmys with seven ignominious snubs throughout the show's run. A mixture of the two create a nasty crack of bone. And while Lord of the Idiots George Costanza may be the polar opposite to the articulate Alexander, who's more like when George abstains from sex, there's a tragedy that can bruise the two. Costanza was trapped in a cyclical life of pain and suffering, too dysfunctional and purposeless to stay alive but too fearful and phobic to kill himself. Worthlessness, neurosis, paranoia, and jaundice melded noxiously with an overinflated, fragile, desperately insecure ego. He was the Biff Loman for the 90s, a man who, no matter the madcap schemes and lies he would conjure up to try and get ahead in the game, could just never win.
1: It's come to my attention that you and the cleaning woman have engaged in sexual intercourse on the desk in your office. Is that correct?
2: Who said that? She did.
1: Was that wrong? Should I not have done that? I tell you, I gotta plead ignorance on this thing Because if anyone had said anything to me at all When I first started here That that sort of thing was frowned upon
2: You know, because I've worked
1: in a lot of offices And I tell you, people do that all the time George never
3: felt guilty That he was trying to cheat someone Because he had already been cheated As far as he was concerned He was just getting a small amount back from the casino that had already totally emptied out his bank
0: account. It's not as though Alexander hasn't won. He bagged a job of a lifetime, an eternal icon status, and a gimmicky jumbo check that meant he would never have to work again if he felt the necessity. And perhaps he doesn't want to work, perhaps he's happy to sit back and dwell on the success. But it's a theory I gravely demur. His talent appears boundless and enduring, and an insane aptitude for comedy, acting, depth and playing humanity seem unparalleled. Whatever he does, there's almost a poetry to it, just watch the opening for the N.Y. Friars' Club Roast of Jerry Stiller if you need any evidence for his virtuosity. He's blessed theatre with Mel Brooks' as The Producers, just one in a whole compendium of plays and musicals, has voice acted in the cult great Duckman, and has taken to the stage for his fair share of stand-up comedy too. And yet none of it is in the vicinity of Seinfeld. None of it seems anywhere befitting of a man of his finesse. I still feel, possibly irrationally, like one of the industry's biggest luminaries remains somewhat underappreciated and unloved. The fact he isn't able to use his quill more often is a travesty. During Stiller's roast, Jeff Ross jibed that Alexander wouldn't ever be granted the same adulation again after Seinfeld, and it cuts a little closer to the bone a near 23 years later. When he should be having murals instated up and down the country, he instead drifts towards an inaccessible abyss, like the warm fuzziness of a childhood memory. Is Alexander too rich to work hard, affording to be incredibly selective with his time? Or has he found himself trapped inside the highly strung body of TV's greatest loser, unable to escape?
1: I wrote this little song to open the evening because I feel it speaks more than any words could to express my feelings about being here. not long ago on my machine a message from the friars dean invited me to join them and make merry i wondered who's the honoree for all the answer given me was by the way the guy where roasting's jerry my phone machine recorded nothing more leaving me excited to my core i pondered as I thought of all the Jerries, it could be. <laughs> jerry springer wouldn't that be some humdinger we could hurl our barbs and stingers and give him the fryer finger or it might be jerry falwell what a joy to make him crawl well he would be a sitting pigeon we'd give him a dose of religion and then there's gerald ford that might strike just the chord we could get our jabs and kicks in Cause he pardoned that rat Nixon It might be Jerry Garcia I'm a deadhead, mamma mia For a roast that's a big yucker Let's throw one for Jerry Sucker Could it be Jerry Lewis? That would be a dream come truest Dean and Frank and Sammy's gone But Jerry just lingers on and on and on and on and on Like a stella fan Jerry Goldsmith scores a movie he would score a roast that's groovy. Jerry Lee Lewis ain't a friar. But we'd have a great ball to hire. Jerry Mathers played the beaver. He would be a swell roast receiver. Tom and Jerry ain't be funny. Jerry McGuire shot sugar Jerry Van Dyke is like no other. What a shame he ain't his brother. Jerry Vale would not be toneless. Cherry Hall is rolling list Or the big guy, Jerry Seinfeld. Now we're talking a uh, gold mine fell. He's not only the big winner, he could bite a freaking dinner. Can't you see? So many. Be my honoree When I heard I said murder That's French for sh** I did not Make any sense of it Then I said, I guess he's funny And he's got a famous sonny And I'll make a little money It may not be quite A thriller, but it's only One night killer Let's make the most, okay, I'll host Let's roast the cherry du jour
0: Michael Richards is a different story. In the wake of Seinfeld, he perhaps had the most stock to capitalize on, a fan favorite after the refreshingly eccentric, wholesomely ignorant, wonderfully slapstick and socially insensible Cosmo Kramer swept hearts and minds across the nation. But being pigeonholed within that evocative role was still a horror that could besiege Richards, and things started dismally. The Michael Richards Show, a sitcom so bland it didn't even have enough flavor to leave a distinctive taste in the mouth. It looked as though Richards had crafted the part of a dry and quick-witted private eye, a part he seems instantly discomposed by. Fraud and crawling, by the third act of each episode it was assured that he'd slip back into the graceless antiques of his more congenial operas. It's surprising, only because of the selfless anguish Richards used to put himself through to reach optimal disposition during Seinfeld. Less surprising is that the sophomoric show was quickly cancelled. Richards' main source of work soon consisted of giving interviews for Seinfeld DVD compilations it could only go up for our ever loyal hipster doofus. But, well, it seems like if Richards had murals they'd be better suited to Italy, 1922. His violently racial tirade at the Laugh Factory in 2006, congested with slurs and vilification, left his career in tatters. His subsequent apology on Letterman, a horribly and unintentionally comic train wreck of unscripted damage control, only poured gasoline on the fire. It was kaput for Kramer. I'm not here to defend Richards, That fateful night is one that clouds nostalgia. But it is still worth noting his spontaneous, outrageous and dangerously high-octane performance style, a boiling pot of emotion that brimmed over, on that fateful night, into intolerable levels. Perhaps one might suggest after 16 years of apologizing, of not even approaching a stage to perform, he deserves a long-awaited renaissance. An appearance and inevitable admission of guilt and anguish on comedians in cars getting coffee was sincere and heartfelt, beautifully juxtaposed against the clearly genuine friendship between Richards and Jerry Seinfeld. After all, the likes of Mel Gibson, an undoubted anti-Semite, and Tracy Morgan, undoubted homophobe, still dominate the industry today. Shouldn't Richards be finally forgiven? Cleansed of that oh-so-heavy stigma? Shouldn't we move past the turmoil? No. No, we shouldn't. What frustrates me most about Richards is his insistence he's not among the Gibsons and the Morgans, that he's not an undoubted racist. Richards, the same man who repeatedly and hysterically spewed out the n-word, claimed to have been heckled and hoped it would all magically dissipate in one liberal swoosh of tolerance. No, doubt is not a luxury Richards deserves to be afforded. Even in his comedians and Cars appearance, he still failed to acknowledge the searing issue of bigotry in any way. His lack of resolve to confront his obvious problem, a problem that is indicative of a greater systemic and societal fracture, is the main reason he's still bemoaning his own demise. He tried to brush it under the rug. He tried to mea a culpa. He tried to poke fun at it. And yet, it never seemed to come to mind to admit, accept, and look to change. In a show that pioneered in the catchphrase "no hugging, no learning," Richards took it one step too far. It may have been the first selfish act of his career, but in this remorseless racket, it'll certainly be his last. Uh,
3: live via satellite yes, from Los do. Angeles. So All right, this do. should be Michael Richards. Michael, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm. I'm uh, not doing too good. Yeah. <laughs> what? What do you explain exactly what happened for the folks who may not know? I. Uh, I lost my temper on stage. I was at uh, a comedy club trying to uh, do my act, and I got heckled, and I. I. I took it badly and went into a. A rage, and. Uh. uh Said some pretty uh, nasty things to some Afro-Americans, a lot of trash talk, and... uh... Stop laughing, it's not funny. And what uh, what were the, 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 you were actually being heckled, or were they just talking and disturbing the act? Uh, That was going on, too. Uh Rage. Michael, let me interrupt here for a second and yeah. ask a question about had, had the uh, the people doing the heckling or the people who were not paying attention, had they been uh, white or Caucasian or uh, any other race, what, what would have been the nature of it your response then? It, it may have happened. You know, I'm a performer. I, I push the envelope. I work in a very uncontrolled manner on stage. I do a lot of free association and spontaneous. I go into character. I do. I, I don't know. In, in, in view of the... Of the situation and the and the act going where it was going, I I don't know the, the the rage the rage did go all over the place. It went to it went to everybody in the room. But you can't you know it's it, it I don't I know people could blacks could feel what he's, I'm not a racist. That's what's so insane about this. I don't and yet it's said it comes through it fires out of me and. Uh, even now, in the in, in the in the passion and the, and the uh, that's here as I as I
2: confront myself.
0: Arguably, it's Julia Louis Dreyfus, the callow SNL outcast and last-minute addition to Seinfeld, who has garnered the most success. Despite the struggles of watching Ellie, Louis Dreyfus made her mark in the comic sagacity of Arrested Development. Before swiftly seizing the lead in 2006 as The New Adventures of Old Christine. Although CBS decided to pull the plug after its fifth season, Louis Dreyfus had another Emmy to add to a slowly growing pile to show for it. Veep, America's Answer to the Thick of It and Spin Off Film in the Loop, came in quick succession two years later, and The Awful Ambition and Liberating Profanity of Selena Meyer won Louis Dreyfus an incredible six consecutive Emmys. Add in her Producer Awards too, and it takes her grand total to 11, an unsurpassed record. If any curse was still lingering like a musty stain of malignant mildew, Louis-Dreyfus has long left it in her unrelenting and preeminent wake. Surrounded by nebbishy men, Elaine Benesch was a feminist heroine, surrounded by succumbing colleagues, Julia Louis-Dreyfus has long been bucking any of the Seinfeld blight. But if we're talking in terms of unadulterated success here, there is, without a doubt, one winner, Jerry Seinfeld. Say I pose the question, who is the wealthiest actor of all time? The average John Doe may go for George Clooney or Tom Cruise or Dwayne the Rock Johnson. They would be mistaken, it's no blockbuster crusader, but our very own serial munching, superficially shallow clean freak. It's a stretch of the imagination, less due to the acidic digestion of Seinfeld's ineffable wealth, but more for the label of actor. Few would argue with any sincerity against the fact that he's never attempted to push out of the solacing haven of being. Jerry Seinfeld. Like many other comics, Seinfeld has a particular acumen for playing himself. That isn't necessarily a criticism, of course, his quick wit, exceptional delivery and infantile optimism construct an almost seductively jocular presence. His ambrosial charm soothes all audiences, whether on our screens or in the flesh. And yet, there's no doubting that the character of Jerry Seinfeld has undertaken several transformations down the years. Back in his Seinfeld prime, Jerry was a humble everyman, able to relate to the hoi polloi due to his prestigious ability to crystallize the incredibly minute, the incredibly frustrating and the incredibly ordinary with an effortless probe. There's always been an air of conceit to the man, and at times it seems he's ghost-writing his own mythology, using power to abrade failed game shows, dating teenagers and swooping in on newlyweds. But buried beneath the genial fictionality of Seinfeld, it was facetious rather than grating, many of the laughs spurred from the puncturing of his own hubris. Unfortunately, that privilege was quashed as soon as Seinfeld pursued his next project, a project certainly not impelled by money or fame or success, but vanity, comedians in cars getting coffee. This Jerry. This is a different Jerry. There's a crankiness, a prickliness, a pomposity. Helen Seinfeld, his doting mother on the sitcom, once mused how anyone could possibly not like her son. Today, the opposite has slowly morphed into an unsightly truth. Seinfeld may have the obligatory smirk plastered to his face, a sure sign of joy, but it remains hard to divert your mind away from the egocentric drivel he obsesses over with a middle-aged buttress for 20 minutes. The brilliance of Seinfeld was its ability to mind deeper than others cared to dig, there was a universality to its every facet that even your Tom, Dick and Harry could equate to. In Comedians and Cars, our once lovable savant frequently fails to scrape the surface of his luxurious guests, revealing more about engines and interiors with his pervertedly stilted voiceovers and customary establishing shots. He was once a Robin Hood for the many, but today Seinfeld seems more like a sheriff of Nottingham for the few. His delusions of superiority quickly wear thin, his once relatable carps have brutally mutated into unrecognizable grouches. The problems of the rich and famous are so far from the lands of reality, they're almost inhuman. As they wallow in nostalgia and wealth, and you sit at home watching, the feeling of alienation, that you're uninvited to this awkwardly impersonal club is an overwhelming one. Comedians in cars getting coffee has highlighted Seinfeld as the least relatable man alive. He's reduced himself to a brand of gross luxury porn, a narcissist and his car collection. If someone does a lame joke, I laugh too much.
1: Really? Yeah.
3: You're a sweet I don't guy. want to make them feel bad. Oh, I want to just the opposite. I want them to feel horrible. Wow. But doesn't it bother you that they think they're funny enough to make a joke to make you laugh? But why shouldn't they? Because you've spent your entire life in this craft. But you're treating world. it like an insult and it's a compliment that they would love you to laugh at them because they love like yes, you so much. Yes, because it
2: would make them think that they're
3: on the same level, and they're not. But it's not like a, someone going up to a doctor and going, "Can I take your appendix out?" Yes, it is. No, it's not. It is to we don't do that thing. We're not. We're not that important, aren't
2: we? <laughs>
0: <laughs> if only somewhere out there. There was a man who was still reaping the rewards of syndicating Seinfeld, was still able to replicate its idiosyncrasies with continued quality, and was still uncorrupted by egotism. Surely, that would be the biggest success of all. They would probably require a unique set of indurated characteristics, a tasteless candor, a flagrant disregard for both the unexceptional and the exceptional, a ceaseless lechery for situational comedy, a bull-legged gait as if consistently punted in the groin as a child, and a brave sheen of dismayed baldness. They would have to be an uncouth infant stripped of all innocence and naivety like bark off a tree and instead have one of the most biting and cynical inclinations around they would have to be completely unsuited to show business nay completely unsuited to human civilization please enter larry david the stealthy black enigma stalking the background of seinfeld sipping brandy and dragging cubans larry david has long been renowned as the secret genius of the sitcom he's the jewish kurt cobain a troubled soul, averse to any human interaction, but finding complete and utter selfishness a better substitute to heroin. This is the man that found Taxi Driver perturbingly relatable, drove a blind woman in the most begrimed limo in history, and remained aimless, unemployed and drifting by his 40th birthday. But instead of being submerged deep into grunge, he toiled doggedly with the correct formula for humor, hooked to the infectious mellifluousness of laughter without wanting to compromise his austere and provocative values. It was only by 1989 that the match dropped in the powder barrel. David is comedy's answer to Nicola Machiavelli, a man that burdens himself purely on what's funny, and he cares little for what isn't. Not that he lusts for the recognition, during Seinfeld's run, he never went foraging for praise, happy to take a backseat to his co-creator. And while Jerry was prone to the lighter touch, preferring the bizarre to the prosaic as seen from the last two seasons after David left, Larry is a twisted man obsessed with the most mundane and unpretentious of the day-to-day. His ideas weren't gelled in his brain, but ignoble scenarios he consistently stumbled into. After jotting them down with notepad and pen, we were bestowed with the likes of the contest, the revenge, the pitch, the pen, the soup Nazi, the phone message, the big salad, and the jacket. His real-life neighbor was the hedonistic Kenny Kramer, and George Costanza was simply Larry incarnate. In fact, Alexander quickly changed from doing a blatant Woody Allen impression in early seasons to a blatant Larry David impression, Arguably, that's when the series began to take off. David's remarkable talent for finding himself in the most atypical and yet domestic confrontations is one that only a few people are blessed with. Instead of being roped off to the corner of parties to tell old and winding stories, he was give the platform of NBC to entertain millions. But the scale of Seinfeld meant Larry would be taking a sharp nosedive, just like his fellow colleagues, to return to his previous wallowing. Of course he had money, but work remained at the forefront of his mind. After quitting in 1996 to furrow into the movie business, he presented comedy buddy film Sour Grapes, a premise which was based solely on the ownership of Two Quarters, which flopped sorely. David admitted to being excited to pursue more flicks, but Grapes was a damning dent to his reputation so quickly out of the starting block. Instead, Larry found himself sitting in his office, pondering. He suddenly decided he was going back into stand-up, nine years since he'd last performed. But before I continue this story, it's probably useful to gain some context. Larry David is what is commonly called a comics comic. Other comedians adored his biting act, but his antagonistic and arrhythmic acerbity left audiences estranged. Larry's the sort of comic you'd imagine would be best when the mic is distorted, the clock is past midnight and everyone is suitably intoxicated. He would often find himself delving into coarse foreign accents and outlandish scenarios with no bridges between bits, only breaking his act to chuckle at himself, a bald, bespectacled and bony wonder strutting the stage. He would wear a stiff army jacket to complete his frugal complexion. Of course, David had actually served five years in the army reserves, purely to avoid going to Vietnam. Unable to do a push-up and stuffing his afro into a crew-cut wig, he hatched a plan to fake a psychotic episode. He was eventually separated a year early, But that's a story for another time. He met Seinfeld in 76, and they struck up a close relationship, collaborating on material. Both thrived on inglorious observations, but Seinfeld was a beguiling ambience. David was a hard-nosed maverick. That's not to say his act wasn't, and isn't, a piece of artistry, of course. If you're able to relax in his surroundings, the impromptu nature of his clip dialect is like being shot by bullets of euphoria. It's just a question of how many times you have to see him perform before you feel comfortable, there's always an unease that David's judging the crowd more than they're judging him, that he's the one going to break out into booing and hissing. He once famously got up on stage, coldly reviewed his audience's demographic, told them to fuck off, and left the stage, all in the space of a couple of seconds.
2: This next performer uh, is returning to stand-up
3: comedy after a 10-year absence. Please welcome Larry David. Thank you. Thank you. I think I'm going to do very well tonight. I really do. I'm feeling just unbelievably confident. Well, it was a bad start. It was a bad start. A really stupid start. I don't know why I did that. You'll see. Well, you've been. uh, You seem like a very nice audience tonight. I'm wondering, uh, in case I break into some Spanish or French. May I use the familiar two form with you people? Instead of Usted, because I think Usted is going to be a little too formal for this crowd. I feel already I've established the kind of rapport that I can, I can jump into the two form with you. That quickly. Fact, I'm taking a two liberty with you. I'm going to use the two form, and that's it. You can't talk me out of it. You know, Caesar used the two form with Brutus even after Brutus stabbed him. He said, and two brute, and I think that's a little too informal when someone's trying to assassinate you. I think at that point, perhaps instead he would have been better off. But that's Caesar. That's crazy, wacky, mixed up, Julius Caesar. He has a tremendous conviction about what he thinks is funny. And, 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 and at the same time, he, he, he'll just crush like an egg, like an empty shell. It must have been very, very stressful to have grown up living next door to Jonas Salk's mother, I would imagine. <laughs> You know, you got this woman, and, uh, you know, every day, same thing. A cell, did I, uh, did I happen to mention, uh, that my son, Jonas, uh, who your little Stevie never let play in the games or stuck him in right field, who never went out with the girls and wasn't athletic, did I happen to mention
2: uh, that he discovered the cure for polio? My
3: little
2: Jonas! Bolly, oh, he's
3: mine! I love him! My Jonas! One thing about uh, Hitler that I admire is that he wouldn't take any shit from magicians. You know? <laughs> uh,
2: uh, you know
3: <laughs> Hitler was a big, big fan of magic, and, uh... <laughs> Hitler would go to a, uh... He'd go to a magic club,
2: <clears throat>
3: and he watched watch the show, and, uh... Afterwards, he'd go, he'd go backstage and talk to the magician. He'd go, and it was a wonderful show. Uh, and I was just uh, wondering, I was talking to my friend, where's the rabbit?
2: <laughs>
3: I'm sorry, my Fuera, Uh I'm really glad you enjoyed it, but we're really not allowed to to tell about the secrets. You know, they're, they're tricks, we not allowed. Yes, yes, I understand you're not allowed to tell, but just tell me, where's the rabbit? <laughs> My parents really it's a union thing. We just. Where is the rabbit? will tell me where the rabbit is now. The closest I ever came to death is when I masturbated bed with a 104 degree temperature.
2: I was, I had the flu, and I was sweating,
3: I, I was under the covers, I was, I was shivering. The sweat was coming down, and I, I, I couldn't even raise my arm hardly. And, and all of a sudden, it started like to drip down. And, and I'm dying here. And the next thing I know, boom, boom, boom. You know, and then, oh my God, I, I thought I was dead. I saw the white light. I started drifting toward the white light. And then there's my uncle going, Oh my God, you're disgusting.
2: I don't know what the hell I you.
3: This is actually a great time for me to cheat on my wife. Because of that whole Clinton scandal, you know, because she was such a staunch supporter of the guy that, you know, what is she going to (laughs) say? I could do whatever I want, come
0: on. As Seinfeld's stand-up took off, appearing on Carson and Letterman, David decided to step out of the limelight into damp, dark obscurity. It seemed the perfect solution, none of the abrasiveness, but all of the same caustic wit, now through a vicarious source. He found his opportunity in 1980 with ABC's sketch series Fridays, an off-brand Saturday Night Live, coincidentally, Fridays was the very place he bonded with a 31-year-old Michael Richards. David departed two years later, his satirical take more refined and sophisticated for it. Another two years passed, and David was in the big time, Saturday Night Live made the prestigious call. Jumping upon the opportunity like a live grenade, he found himself in a place of turmoil and upheaval. As this was SNL during the Lorne Michaels vacuum of the early 80s, his paltry stint lasted just a year. He had a few moments of note, one sketch which aired at 12:50 a.m. to muted response, heckling Michael McKean during his 18th century Scottish a cappella dirge.
1: Oh, I had seen day that hey, could sell. Us. Sir, sir, whoever you are, do you know anything about performers? Performers are human beings, sir. If I don't deserve your respect, at least I deserve your attention. I appreciate that you know me as Lenny. That's fine. But did you you see Spinal Tap? Did you know me as This is Spinal Tap, the actor, musician This is Spinal Tap, received marvelous reviews and did great business? Do you know me as the actor who worked in 1969 at the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Foundation? Conference? Yeah,
3: I'm familiar with do
1: that. Do you know any of this, sir? <laughs> what do I have to do to get your respect, sir? Do you want me to do Hamlet? I've done Hamlet. I did Hamlet. And frankly, I think my Hamlet would be wasted on you. <laughs> hey, Hamlet, where's Squiggy? <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, have a good time, it's
0: And acquainting Julia Louis Dreyfus in her similarly short spell. After quitting in a blind rancor of resentment, he attempted to return the next week and find Costanza fettle, pretending it was nothing more than a judicious jig. He was promptly fired. Larry was now in his forties, aimless, unemployed, and drifting. Then, of course, Seinfeld came and went. So too did sour grapes. And Larry found himself sitting in his office, pondering. He began scribbling some new material down. Perhaps with his so faithful notepad and pen. Wouldn't that be romantic? A deadpan, overweight and very Jewish comic, with the gleeful giggle of a plump ponytail 12-year-old, sticks his head in the door to inquire what Larry's up to. A foam of curled mousy hair froths on his head, and his portly half-contrasted against Larry's wiry skeleton is reminiscent of Kramer and Newman brewing up a get-rich-quick scheme. This portly fellow is Jeff Garland, and he doesn't have such a shabby scheme himself, he offhandedly suggests Larry films his new stand-up. Something clicks. Things move fast, and soon the idea of a successful sitcom writer's comeback to stand-up is pitched to HBO, who rhapsodize at the very prospect. The special Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm is commissioned, an hour-long mockumentary, a la Spinal Tap, interspersed with interviews from the likes of Jerry Seinfeld, Jason Alexander, and Richard Lewis. It's set to be completely improvisational, allowing the actors to ebb and flow through tangents and diatribes. Garland is cast as Larry's womanizing manager and close friend, Jeff Green, and Cheryl Hines as Larry's socialite wife, Cheryl David. Larry Will, of course, played the titular character, a step into the unknown for someone who'd rendered a face for the last 20 years. What is
3: it? Going to be honest all the time? I
4: mean, it's a little time, huh, isn't it? Most of the time,
3: yeah. They're supposed to sit and have a conversation with
0: this thing watching you all the time. That's the point. They're
4: going to watch us sit and have a conversation. Forget that it's here. (sighs) Please go. Why not? I don't like gum. What's not to like? I don't know. I don't. I've never been a big gum guy. (laughs) This is this is good stuff, huh? Uh, Yeah, that's real good. Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah. I'm glad it's getting all this. Yeah, you get that gum story we just did? Because that's that was really
4: good. Let me just say something to you. You'll be yeah. fine. Gentlemen, they're ready yeah. for you. Oh, thank you. I wish I wore a different shirt. A really well, thing. brown and green don't usually match, but you got the yellowed offset it. You're okay, let's go, come on. What do you think of this shirt?
0: You look great. Really? Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm doesn't set the world aflame, but it's a fair success. David and Garland get set to move on with their lives, a sweet cash influx and an hour of experimental tape. But HBO like what they see. So much so, they gently prod Larry to see if he'd be interested in considering turning it into a full-time series. And that, ladies and gentlemen, can be pinpointed as the exact moment Curb Your Enthusiasm was hatched. Before I say any more, it probably is worth embellishing on the currently virgin character of Jeff Garland. His careers recently in Bedlam after the abrupt firing of Patriarch Murray Goldberg from the breathlessly mawkish escapades of the Goldbergs when a three-year internal investigation came to its conclusion. Of course, it's something incredibly difficult to gauge from the outside, but how much Garland's actually done wrong remains. Nebulous. From my personal brand of scattergun research, it appears complaints were filed due to a pattern of uncomfortable physical and verbal conduct, particularly the use of over-excessive hugging and the word vagina. Vagina. Just days before his departure, Garland could be found on stage, lambasting the Goldbergs as a politically correct, highly censored antipathy he exercised for crisp checks, he pointed towards Emmy-winning sitcom Curb Your Enthusiasm as his kind of shtick, a show reputed for its unapologetic insensitivity and cancel-cancel culture. Just like when Seinfeld last sanctified our screens in 1998, a cultural and comedic revolution has fermented, and Larry David has, once again, completely remodeled the nature and identity of the classic sitcom. Curb Enthusiasm is ostensibly a Seinfeld reboot, but with a surplus of Jerry, Elaine and Kramer print. Instead, a newfangled George Costanza is sharpened upon, his erupting blemishes in full formication. The minutiae of misanthropy is the backbone of David's work, and the habitual premise of Curb Your Enthusiasm usually consists of our tactless, fastidious and curmudgeonly Lionheart flouting accustomed social conventions for his own intricate, inherently selfish and yet always well-founded internal logic, to which the rest of the cast are completely oblivious. Not many sitcoms can somehow simultaneously titillate the senses and yet leave the viewer sick to their stomach with anxious unease, but Curb is an exception. The show's genius is taking the most awkward and the most absurd and make it disconcertingly real. Larry's able to grapple our deepest and most festering frustrations and unleash them in exceedingly graceless, blunt and problematic fashion. Season 5's tagline was, deep inside, you know you're him. The show's genius is that Larry David is the only sane one in an insane civilization. In the world of Curb, self-interest is a not-sin, but a rare purity. A cleanser, if you will. The structure of an episode is almost like Shakespearean tragedy. Man starts on high. Man makes a spate of oversights and terminal fumbles due to his inescapably self-defeating personality. Man is punished, and the order he once violated is restored to a just cosmos. Next episode.
4: That's why I always hated the term comedy club, because it's just such a general term. There's so many different kinds of comedy. And, uh, you know, please don't get offended when I say I don't think our show is brilliant. Um, I think no wait what I'm saying I'll tell you what's brilliant Pixar movies are brilliant because you can be the stupidest person on earth and the smartest person on earth and you'll get something rich out of it Right. our show I think you have to be smart I don't think I, I, it's, it's and by the way, that makes me happy because there's enough stuff out there for stupid people. You know? <laughs> the majority of entertainment is designed for stupid people. So I'm very proud to be affiliated with something that not that we're like so high and mighty we think that way, but it's for smart people. It's and that makes me happy. And and so there you go. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: And while curb is deeply rooted in Larry's strictly funny philosophy, its tragic underpinning means it unwittingly delves much deeper into the often eclipsed constructions of society. From the dilution of Jewish ethnic individuality to the uncomfortable affluence of the bourgeoisie, far more often than your typically facile and mindless half an hour of entertainment. It's laudable that curb your enthusiasm can be one of the greatest deconstructions of human nature and completely inadvertently. Take the almost blasé and neutral light in which it frames wealth. Larry David may be casual and unassuming, but he's an incredibly minted magnate, and Curb takes a similar veneer. It may be everyday frustrations, but money is not one of them in upper-class Hollywood. It's like sticking your head in a rusty trough to play apple bobbing, but finding the apples have been replaced with truffles. Characters relocate from empty mansion to empty mansion unexplained and frivolously, luxury cars are brought and discarded like playthings, dinner parties pile upon dinner parties pile upon dinner parties. There's certainly a subtle layer of social commentary going on here, intentional or not. When you achieve the gifts of fame and money, you can purchase the sleek, hand-stitched, tailored tuxedo. But in order to show off the sleek, hand-stitched, tailored tuxedo, you must lower yourself to the mingling and the pleasantries and socializing, the fabricated feelings and false mannerisms, with the endless gatherings, rules, obligations and contracts. Is it just the obscene whining of a self-pitying introvert? David ruining the rich, aging, straight, white man's struggle of having to eat a nice meal with esteemed guests. In a suit? Curb might even bring the same sourly entitled taste of comedians in cars to mouth. But it differs on two counts. First, the people that ground these lavish horizons. They're all terrible. Petty, immoral, judgmental, dishonorable, you name it. And they're all miserable, no matter their wealth. These are people that show off the very worst of humanity but, nonetheless, show off humanity, they are relatable. In Comedians in Cars, a dissociated egotist and his masochistic dog scoff it up over how funny they still are. Fake smiles are as painful for us as it is for their Botox. They aren't fallible mortals, no, but lifeless mannequins, 80% ego and 20% plastic. Denial surges through every fiber, curb your enthusiasm, meanwhile, relishes brutal and gangling honesty, however ugly. And the messiah of this prosperous wasteland? He's far from Messiah. While Seinfeld glorifies himself in every beat, David has instead crafted a heightened caricature of his worst qualities, a neurotic, unbridled, self-absorbed asshole, who spends all his time bumbling, complaining, blaming, and confronting. But let me highlight a key word there, caricature. Self-deprecation is a rare quality, but to see it in such abundance is simply miraculous. Arguably, it was George Costanza's self-awareness of his many shortcomings that caused him so much pain. And yet that self-awareness maintained his paradoxical likability. David repeats the feat. Beneath all that asocial phobia, there seems to be a real base of humility to him. Perhaps fictional Larry is a self-involved narcissist, completely remote of empathy. But still, even then, he's certainly a much more likable narcissist than Jerry Seinfeld. Why, it brings me to my second count, Larry never wins. Constantly caving to his staunch and impulsive beliefs, nothing ever goes right for him. In Comedians in Cars, there are no stakes, Jerry and company can't lose. Perhaps that's what's so frustrating, it's like a rigged video game, manufactured so the bad guys just keep on winning and winning and winning. And while Curb 2 can feel contrived on its worst days, how refreshing it is to see something contrived for the hero to get their comeuppance. It is a show conscious of its sensibilities, much like David, it isn't self-indulgent over futile issues, but mocking at its own door. Larry's gracious prowess in utilizing his surrogate self means he's been able to completely skewer the image of life at the top with a wedded stab at the elitism of high society, exposing human nature in all its gnarled equivocality. Curb your enthusiasm lives on to this very day, its 11th season in 23 years, finishing on Christmas Eve, 2021. Is it the end? Who knows? Larry has never been a fan of telling us that much. It may not be as sprightly as some of its golden runs, but when its perfectly quilted plot lines come together with the infamous jauntiness of Luciano Michelini's frolic, it still hits like a wall of endorphins. To that, one must say, bravo, Larry David. Bravo. We have been blessed with some of the greatest comic minds who through their own trouble and turmoil earned a platform and conjured up two of the greatest sitcoms of all time even though some of those great comic minds have tainted the wrapping on what were once pristine presence of pleasure it would be asinine to discard esteemed gifts in an ardent quake of overzealous morality and yet seinfeld in particular remains a cold and clear cut of the maxim never meet your heroes curb your enthusiasm doesn't experience the same tarnish outside its own realm excluding jeff garland In fact, the sitcom does the opposite, everyone looks so insufferable in the show, it augments the real-life people. Of course, it shouldn't be forgotten that in Seinfeld they didn't play good people, but there was a charm to each character that left the viewer with feelings of cautious tantalization. Season 7 of Curb Your Enthusiasm was a particularly strong peak, with an in-universe Seinfeld reunion, a great within a great. It ran like a 10-episode finale that felt befitting of the original, and beautiful not least for the ingenuity of the mind-bending. Inception-esque concept, but the pleasure of seeing the cast not be themselves. Instead of the delicate liberty they so poorly fumbled with, they were back under the stranglehold of the Jewish Kurt Cobain, and how exhilarating it was to see them just do what they do best.